Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, team is mad. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John P. right here. Past Ball Show right here on the FTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out JohnPLA.com. Got all my updated interviews and past shows as well as Bases Empty blog. And we're going to do a lot of uh, getting into Bases Empty blog today. I wrote some historical articles, a couple things that I want to get into of stuff that's happened in the past in Major League Baseball. And also we're going to get into some conventional stuff, some stuff that's going on in regards to some of the, the games that you've seen through the first couple weeks of the season. And one thing that we always get into, and I tell you, you know, baseball season, we're all excited to see it getting going so early. And, you know, we're in April and teams are playing games and results are recorded everything's all set up on the record and we kind of get to a little bit of a conclusion that we jump to maybe a little bit too early sometimes a team goes out there five and one like the Miami Marlins or uh, the Seattle Mariners who are off to a good start and we say hey is it justified are the Mariners as good as they were because of the Robinson Cano signing and the moves that they made and you know obviously time's going to go by and tell which teams are going to be the surprise teams and which teams aren't and we'll get into that in a little bit but first thing I'm going to get into. We got some really good interviews we're going to play today. The first one I'm going to play is the guy that really was the reason, maybe not the sole reason, but probably the last straw in regards to Major League Baseball before they implemented the draft. And this happened in 1964 when Rick Reichert was a highly touted outfielder at a University of Wisconsin. And basically he becomes the last of what was the bonus babies and the time where players were being signed by major league teams and they'd go to the highest bidder or in some cases they'd go to the team that they felt that would give them the best chance to win a lot of teams a lot of players wanted to win and you know Rick Reichert ends up going to the Angels a $200,000 signing bonus and afterwards the major league baseball teams got together and decided for the 1965 season that they would have the major league draft and it would set up to where the teams that finished with the worst record in the past year would end up having a first pick and vice versa, obviously on its way up in uh, ascending order from the lowest record to the highest record and kind of add a little more competitive balance to the game, but most importantly, lower the amount of money that these players who had never played in a major league game 
would end up getting before they ever made it their major league debut. And Rick Reichert was the last example of this. And Rick Reichert had a pretty good career and probably not as as touted as the, the numbers that he had in college and what was expected of him once he became a major league player, but made his debut in 1964, getting a couple at-bats, 37 to be exact for the Los Angeles Angels. And when their team name became the California Angels, he had a couple of good seasons. His best season was 1968, where he had 21 home runs, drove in 73 runs, hitting 255, and would end up spending a couple more years with the Angels before playing with the Washington Senators, the Chicago White Sox, and finishing off his career with the Kansas City Royals in 1973 and 1974. But a lot of interesting things we get into with Riker. It was a very intelligent man. And, you know, what, what I enjoy about talking with players, you know, it's great to talk to a guy that you could tell he was very well educated. He got his the education at the University of Wisconsin, was also a very good football player. And we get to talk about a national championship game he had the opportunity to play in. So hopefully Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot. Former Major League outfielder, former uh, the last of what was the bonus baby, signed with the Los Angeles Angels as an amateur free agent in the year of 1964. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with Rick Reichert. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli. I'm happy to be joined by former Major League outfielder Rick Reichert. Rick, thanks for having a couple minutes. Thanks. Nice to visit with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, a lot of things I want to get into, but first, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, playing playing college, because you, you, we met, you were great at baseball and football as well. You played on a very good Wisconsin team that you know, was very competitive, competed for the national championship. Tell us a little bit about your experience in college being a two-sport athlete. Well, I was recruited as a football player, of course, and uh, baseball was the furthest thing to my mind because I didn't play any high school baseball. I was a track guy. And as it turned out, in those days, as freshmen, you couldn't compete. But you, you had spring football practice. You practiced with all the players. And so on the very, very last play of spring football practice, a walk-on, I'm not going to mention his name, rolled up in my ankle. And I sustained a nasty uh, ankle injury. My father was an orthopedic surgeon, Green Bay Packer doctor, and maybe about a month before the uh, football season started, he operated on that on that ankle. Right. And he did a good job. I ended up playing the whole year. And of course, that year, he ended up playing in the Rose Bowl and so on. But that's following spring, my sophomore year. Uh, I went to the coach and I asked him if I could go out to the baseball team. Now, I had Little League and Babe Ruth experience. Yeah, you played before. And uh, five guys on my Little League team, believe it or not, signed professional baseball contracts with some good coaching. And uh, the guy's name was Milford, he was a head football coach. He says, Rick, you can go out as long as you make the team. Well, our first road trip, of course, it's to uh, Arizona State because I couldn't play uh, baseball in the spring and it was snowing. And I didn't do real well the first couple games. Then a guy, the bench means I took my place and he didn't do as well. And then two years later, I led the Big Ten and hitting both years and signed the largest contract in Major League Baseball. So I go back to something that we discussed a little earlier today about you just never know when your destiny's five minutes ahead. No, but the football experience was wonderful and uh, one of the one of the coaches that I met early on was a guy named Fred Jacoby who recruited me. He was a freshman coach and everybody that he recruited was in the top 25% of their high school graduating class. Yeah, and then two years later we were the national champs so it can be done. So student in those days conceded athlete and I just cannot play on ordinary successful 
your teammates have been not only, I think, eight guys from my 1965 class played in the NFL, and all of us have been very, very successful away from, from the sport as well. Yeah, it must have, must have been interesting to know that there was there was a balance between being an athlete and being a, you know, there for your education and getting your education, because you've also mentioned that, you know, a lot, a lot of the people that you went to school with, you went to college with, ended up being very successful outside of their life, even if they weren't athletic. And we weren't just taking easy courses either. I was in pre-med, all these guys were in pre-law. Um, so they were taking very difficult coaches. And as you know, when you're playing college sports, it's very consumptive. Exactly. It takes a lot of your time. In those days, uh, I lived with my grandfather, and I didn't have a car. So I had two sports to deal with. I also had two miles to walk to school in the snow. <laughs> so it worked out, you know. But if you work at it and you're diligent enough, uh, it'll pay off. Yeah. And once again, John Pielli here with Rick Riker. Now, the 1963 Rose Bowl, you know, you're matched up against uh, against USC. Uh, obviously, a very highly tied game. USC gets off to, you know, the big start. They're up by, you know, whatever. Is it 30 points or, you know, even more at one point? And you're part of the comeback in the second half. Talk a little bit about that experience because I'm sure being involved in that game, that game probably meant the world to you. And then the first half goes on, it's getting a little out of hand, but still you're able to make a game of it and almost come back. Right. In fact, we probably could have won that game. We had a guy, they were punting from the end zone with about a minute left. Instead of trying to block the punt, they're punting the end zone, you won right by the guy. So that could have changed the outcome of the game. But I sort of blame the fact we started very slowly. You're actually staying in, uh, what would they call it, where, uh, where they have priests and so on in training? I forgot what it is. Yeah, exactly. We were in like a monastery. They were sleeping in cots. Uh, the previous Wisconsin Rose Bowl team got in trouble with their nightlife. So they were guarding against that. So we really didn't get off track until maybe the middle of the third quarter. And then, of course, we had wonderful players, a lot of guys that played in the pros. And Ron Vandercombe had a great year. And a guy named Pat Richter, who uh, later played in the pros. And probably the most important man, in my opinion, University of Wisconsin athletic history, because he was the uh, athletic director that hired Barry Alvarez and Bo Ryan, and some of the really, really wonderful coaches they've had there. Yeah, no, very true, man. And uh, you know, you, as you go through that experience, like you're playing that game, and what what is it like? Because you, because you you realize that hey, the first half didn't go well. Maybe you, you know you didn't you didn't get off to the best of starts, but you probably felt you know man to man the team that you are as good, if not better, than USC in that game, right? Well, yes, and plus we're playing a conference as, as talented as the, as the Pac-10 yeah, in those Pac-10, days. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think just reflecting on a number of guys from my team that made the pros versus their team, I think they had Bedsold, a couple of the Ben Wilson was another guy yeah. came to mind. We had a lot more guys that ended up in the pros, so we definitely had the talent. It's just one of those things. Maybe uh, we weren't scouted, we didn't scout well enough, I don't know, but I do think the fact that we're in this monastery for like the two weeks previous to the game. Yeah, it was a big discussion. Once again, John Fialli here with Greg Riker. Now, when was this decision you made from yourself when you when you decided you wanted to pursue baseball more than football? Or was that even something that ever came to you? Well, I think the whole thing was sort of predicated on the fact that I had this injury. Yeah. It was a very painful injury. It didn't go away. My dad did the surgery, but I just didn't want that kind of thing to happen again. Now, I was bigger and stronger than most of the guys that in my class, yet I had, during the three years I played at Wisconsin, I had five concussions, I had two broken wrists, I had calcium deposits removed from my ankle, we talked about that, 
and I'll have a transverse fracture in my back, which later, the residual of that cost me my kidney, the rookie year in the major leagues, and in my opinion, really uh, took a lot of the resiliency that I had as a player, as an athlete, and was probably very impactful. So, to me, uh, being the father of one child and one son, I'm very glad that he's in play football, because I think that sport has very few redeeming qualities beyond the high school level, let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. So you never you never thought about playing two sports professionally? Well, I, you never, you, you, well, I, was, actually, I was actually drafted by the Baltimore Colts after I was in the major leagues. Really? I, 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 Johnny Unitas was a roommate of mine in a golf outing, he said they wanted me in the worst way. In fact, the coach is one of the inducements to have me come back as a senior, so they're going to put me up for the highest amount. Playing a band, that probably was a, was a lie. But I was a very, very good football player. I had broken L.I. Hurst's scoring records in high school and stuff like that. And even when I was with the Angels, George Allen came down from the Rams and wanted me to play football, but Gene Audrey put the key by to that. So I, I could have done it, there's no question I could have played pro football, but I just don't think that uh, the money that they're making those days and the kinds of things that I know about their pension and so on, that would not have worked for me. And then you look at everything that's happened since with a lot of the players with the concussions and the lifelong injuries, and you've seen what's really happened. I bet you kind of, you know, you kind of you know, look back in retrospect and say, yeah, maybe I'm glad I didn't subject myself to that, that yeah. type of violence. I know we played against Ohio State, I can't remember, my sophomore or junior year, and they had sort of a crown of their helmet, which was made of uh, foam. Yeah. And after that game, usually after a game you're in bed for a couple of days because you hurt so very much. Yeah. After the game, it was like I hadn't played in it. Uh, okay. And my dad, who was sort of a very famous orthopedic surgeon, he feels as if the helmet, which to me is a weapon, should be totally coated soft on the outside, and nobody's ever really brought that up. Yeah. And it makes all the sense uh -huh. in the world, you know? So, uh, you know, that sport is very, very rough. And as I look back, even though I enjoyed my teammates and had some wonderful experience, I just think it has long-term some very few redeeming qualities. Absolutely. Once again, John Fiali here with Rick Riker. Now, when you you, get, you end up going through the process of, of uh, I guess, the way it was set up with signing as an amateur free agent, uh, you know, whatever whatever you want to call it, as far as the teams going after you and making offers to you and stuff like that. How would you describe that the best? Like, what, what kind of experience was that? Was it... Uh, let's say 10 teams all kind of interested in you, maybe making offers to you, some do, some not, or something like that. How would you explain that experience? Well, I had advice of a very strong local attorney named Gene Calhoun, in our own expense, we went to the teams that we thought were the most interested, paid our own way, paid for our hotel rooms and a whole nine yards, and listened to what they had to say. And uh, the long and short of it, the Angels' offer was, was one of the best. It was not the best. I was offered considerably more by Charlie Finley and uh, the then Kansas City Athletics. And, for, and it was actually a personal service contract, which really had nothing to do with baseball. But I was a little nervous about Charlie in those days, and we decided that uh, the Angels would be the best opportunity for me to play right away. But, uh, yeah, and of course you end up you end up getting in the major leagues relatively quick. Right. Um, you know, talk a little bit about the uh, the, the kidney ailment because that's something that obviously happens to you is a very big thing that not only affects the rest of your baseball career but affects your life. Right. Well, I remember I was rooming with Clyde Wright down in Newport Beach, and I woke up one morning after being on a fairly long road trip with a real bad headache. And he literally put me on his shoulder, took me to the doctor, and a week later I'm at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, having my kidney removed. Wow. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I can tell you that my resilience, everything sort of changed after that because I was having some of the Steve Trout type things that first half year. And uh, after that, I just didn't have the, the strength to do it on a day-to-day basis. I had a very nice major league career, but I think had I not lost that kidney, which again, I think was a residual from this football injury, I think I would have had a more productive major league career. Yeah, it definitely would have. And I'll tell you, one thing that's interesting about you know, your, your playing career, and obviously being uh, really the last of the quote-unquote bonus babies, or, you know, it probably had changed the, the definition of the whole thing. But, uh, you know, after, of course, after you signed, it ended up implementing the draft system. Right. So do you, do you, do you think you yourself as kind of the guy maybe that broke the mold and kind of forced them to go towards the, the way of the draft? Uh, there's no question about it because that draft was implemented after the general manager's meeting yeah. the following year. And of course, at the end of my career, I was a player rep because I was a White Sox doing what they call the reserve clause era. And at one time, they had six or seven guys that did not sign contract. The reserve clause in the uniform players contract reserves the right of that team to sign you for the next year. But if you don't sign the contract, guess what? You're a free agent. So uh, exponentially, the salaries went from 35000 to two fifty, And I think Catfish or somebody, one of the first guys that did it. And uh, since then, it's even gotten crazier. But it's all about, you know, how many people can bid for your services as it was when I first signed. You know, everybody could have paid me whatever they wanted to. Oh, very true. I'll tell you, one thing I do want to ask you about playing, you know, you signed that, you signed the contract, of course, with the Angels. Did you feel that there was any extra pressure added to you because of what you signed for? Because obviously it was a, it was a national story. Everybody knew that you got paid what you ended up getting paid to sign with the Angels. Uh, did you feel any added pressure to have to produce within a certain amount of time? For whatever reason, I never felt any pressure whatsoever. I had enough confidence in myself as an athlete, and having played all kinds of different sports and had some modicum of success in them, uh, that wasn't going to be a problem for me. I wasn't trying any harder than anybody else. I tried just as hard as I normally would, and I was just hoping the chips would fall where they may. And I think there are enough people making decisions on my ability as an athlete that, you know, that should never have been an issue anyway. No, absolutely. Now, now, Rick, as, as you end up going through your career, you, know, you end up, of course, the kidney ailment kind of slows you down a little bit, but uh, your career in baseball ends up kind of ending a little star- unceremoniously. You know, you end up getting that one at-bat in the game with Kansas City. Right. And, you know, afterwards, you end up, you end up getting released. Uh, what, what was going through your mind at that moment? And obviously, you probably felt like you still had a lot more left. Oh, I, I know I had a lot more left. It was one of those situations where, and even the general manager at the time was crying yeah. when I got my pink slip, and he knew it wasn't him, it wasn't his coaches, it was some major league owners uh, that made a decision. They didn't want any ex-bad boy you know, causing them more money. And uh, I had the opportunity to play beyond that, but I just felt you know, enough was enough. And I just didn't think my being the focal point of some kind of a comeback would be, uh, would be helpful to anybody. Once again, John Piala here with Rick Riker. Now, when you, you end up leaving the game, obviously you were a player representative for a lot of, you know, at least at least one or two of the teams that you, you had played for. Uh, when did you start getting involved with the, the Players Association? Well, I was really one of the original board members of the major alumni, okay, so it really wasn't involved with the Players Association. In fact, we hosted our first event here in Gainesville, Florida, 25 years ago. Yeah, we had a golf outing, we had 
a fan clip in old timers game. We had, I think ten Hall of Famers. I think we only had six hundred people show up and thing. I was sort of embarrassed about that. Yeah. But Gainesville is a very consumptive football town and that hasn't changed. Yeah. But Beyond that, I coached the Gators. We had some success. Almost went to College World Series. I coached every sport known to man and woman: soccer, girls soccer, girls basketball, softball, baseball, football, the whole nine yards. I have I have a batting cage and a pitching machine in my backyard. And, you know, I've got an endless number of kids that have used that cage, learning all the Ted Williams, Charlie Law stuff, and I have never collected a farthing for it because I figure, you know, I've got a lot to give and I'm trying to give back. Even today, I'm sub-teaching. That's, That's awesome. a local high school. Right, and, and obviously involving yourself, you know, whether it's a player rep or, you know, afterwards, just kind of with the Alumni Association, you had, you, you had a chance to know Marvin Miller. Oh, yeah. What would what would be your best explanation of Marvin Miller? Because everything that I hear makes me kind of wish that I had more of a chance to meet the man. Well, he's obviously a brilliant man, and of course, the situation in those days was very very polarized. It was Marvin Miller and the union. They called it a union, but for all intents and purposes, it was players' rights. Yeah. I mean, I played baseball in what is tantamount to the era of slavery. There were guys that were making twelve thousand dollars that had to get jobs or cut collect unemployment in the off season exactly. and there weren't there weren't any benefits until people like Robin Roberts got involved with the pension and all that kind of stuff. I mean even stories about early Wynn who played twenty two years collecting two hundred and fifteen dollars a month in pension. Wow. I mean, you know, so things have really changed for the better. I still think there's more they can do for the retired players that are close to the pension and haven't gotten it. Uh, when I first started playing uh, in the major leagues, you had to have five years in the major leagues, and then it was four, and now I think it's something like 90 days. Yeah. Well, if they could retroactively just help some of these guys that had maybe a year or two, uh, it would be very helpful to them. And I think they could do it. I don't know if the laws are necessary, but that's a possibility. Yeah, that's awesome. And now, now Marvin Miller, obviously, if it wasn't for him, a lot of a lot of players, you know, looking back on it, may not be in the position that they even are now. So I think it's, I think it's a great thing that everybody has done, you know, from from you to everybody else that's been involved with it, and it, it really looks like they, they've started to turn the corner in regards to what was before. Because you mentioned the, the reserve clause was the exact opposite of anything that's going on. It, it is kind of a comparison to slavery, and not with any disrespect meant towards slavery, but it, it was something where where you were you're playing a game and it was essentially treated like you're just playing a game. Yeah, we and, were we were definitely being used by no question about it. And I'm sure that and today the monies involved are incredible. I still think that the players themselves could give back. There's all kinds of gifting arrangements. Uh, they could individually do the players that are in need. I know there's some organizations within baseball that do it, but I think the players themselves would really be in a good position. Uh, when you're making five or six million dollars, which is low these days and you know, there's so many of these guys can give to somebody, right? No, exactly. Especially a lot of players that are making that probably aren't aren't worth it in regards to what they put on the field. You got yeah. a, a 220 header that... No, if you, 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 you know, sign a contract, you're worth it. I mean, you can't yeah, go blame no, anybody. Yeah, I, I know, it's a little exaggeration, but, but I'm saying for a dirty amount of money yeah. that they're, they're making, it's, it's different. It's, it's different than it was before. Well, even the guys that are retired a long time, and some of these guys, their pension is $180,000 a year. I mean, come on. That's a lot of money. They don't have kids to put to school. They probably have their houses paid for. So there are things, I think, within the context of the players themselves yeah. where they can help some of these guys that are... 
Yeah, very true. Once again, John Pielli here with Rick Riker. Last question I want to ask you. Go back to your time with the Angels. Um, how how would you remember yourself? Like, let's say, if you are like an, an, angel, an angel fan or the Angels organization, how do you re- remember yourself as a, a member of the Angels team, whether it was Los Angeles or, of course, you became the California Angels athlete? Well, I always make the comment that I never met a fellow teammate or baseball player that I didn't like, and I really feel that way. And, of course, uh, in spite of the fact that I received a lot of money, I was really embraced yeah. by my teammates, and I was always a player for whatever team. I, so I think that was a pretty good indication that they liked me, respected me, and nothing to do with the money that I had earned and so on and so forth. But uh, in those days, I think we were sort of a stepchild to the Dodgers. Yeah. You know, and we actually played our first few games uh, in my major league experience in Dodgers Stadium, my first major league home run there. So until we sort of got our own identity down in Anaheim, uh, I don't think things were quite the same in terms of perception of the fans there. And from your own perspective, who do you think was the biggest influence in getting that team that identity? Well, there's no question. It's not. I mean, the guy is an amazing guy. He's one of the most unbelievable human beings that I've ever met. He and a guy named uh, Walt Disney are probably people I have the most respect for uh, of the people that I've met in my life. Yeah. Outstanding. Listen, Rick, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate you, you know, giving me the time of day, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Great catching up there with Rick Riker, and of course, Rick, uh, the bonus baby of 1964, signs a contract for $200,000 with the Los Angeles Angels uh, before they became the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but a little bit later, they become the California Angels, where he spends the majority of his career, and you know, kind of sad the way it ended. He gets a, an at-bat for the Royals in 1973. He ends up being released after that. Obviously, he wasn't happy about it. He felt like he had some more left. But, you know, you could tell the guy, obviously, a good head on his shoulders, gets on with the rest of his life. But, you know, a 10-year major leaguer, a uh, guy that may not have really uh, amounted to exactly what was thought when he was such high, highly touted as outfielder from the University of Wisconsin. And you hear a little talk about him being an athlete and how good of a football player he was. And once again, John Pielli here, Passball Show, right here on the FTR Radio Network. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We keep the program interactive. Uh, One thing I want to get into, we're going to talk a little bit about the season so far. As 2014 season is underway, um, games are being played, and if you want to take a a, uh, positive look, you'll talk about some of the teams that are off to a good start. Some of the ones could be expected, the Detroit Tigers, the Washington Nationals, uh, San Francisco Giants, teams that are all pretty much predicted by many to make the playoffs. But then you talk about some teams that are off to a good start that you wouldn't expect. Uh, The Seattle Mariners are probably uh, this year's version of what you would say are the Miami Marlins of a couple of years ago or the Toronto Blue Jays of last year, the team that kind of won the offseason with a big move or two that they made. And in the Mariners' case, the signing of Robinson Cano to a 10-year contract uh, obviously gave them some credibility. Uh, You know about the the good pitching they have with – guys like Felix Hernandez and Hashashi Iwakuma and Taiwan Walker coming up, but you also know that Iwakuma and Walker are not pitching right now. They're both injured. They're both started the season on the disabled list, but this is a team that had a good first week, and you know, is this something that could carry over over the next uh, five-plus months or five-and-a-half months? We'll see how it works out. A team like the Miami Marlins, and you know about the, their rebuilding uh, thing that they're going through, but one, two things that they have going for them. They have a stud pitcher in Jose Fernandez and a stud hitter in Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, the question is, how are they going to assemble the rest of the team around it? And through the first week, they've had some good wins. They've gotten themselves off to a good start. 
Uh, is this something that they should be taking seriously? Well, some people that kind of look through the game and maybe micromanage things that they see right before their eyes as opposed to letting things play out may say, hey, the Miami Marlins are the biggest surprise of the season. Well, you could have said the same thing about the Houston Astros, who took the first two games of the season against the New York Yankees. Um, you know, they got off to a good start, but they're three and five now. They've lost four, you know, whatever, five of their last six uh, at the moment of this broadcast. Uh, they kind of went back down to earth pretty quick. And one thing you got to realize is teams that are off to a good start, all it takes is a bad series or two, and they're back to where you thought they would be before. So I think, you know, getting into the season at the point where we are now, it's a little too early to get on the back of a team that won maybe five or seven games or four out of five or something like that to start the season because you don't really know how it's going to pan out over the course of a 162-game season. But saying that about a team that's off to a good start, you also have to say that about a team that's off to a bad start. And no team has gotten off to a worse start over the first week plus of the season than the Arizona Diamondbacks. And of course, the Diamondbacks played the first two games of the season against the Los Angeles Dodgers down in Australia, lost them both, and have carried on that tradition of losing from what they started off with through the first week or two of the season. And uh, at the moment of the broadcast are 2-8, and eight, uh, have a lot of questions, um, a lot of expectations as well. And a lot of people were expecting the Arizona Diamondbacks to play good baseball and uh, to be certainly a perennial uh, a playoff team, a team that should make the playoffs, uh, at least the way I look at it, um, a team that uh, obviously has a lot to, to be happy about, a team that has the guy who should have won the MVP last year, and Paul Goldschmidt, who, by the way, is not off to a bad start, but a good lineup that's balanced with guys like Aaron Hill and Mark Trumbo, who came off you know, hitting five home runs in the first week plus of the season, a guy who I, I told you all along I hope goes out there and hits 50. Uh, kind of a slap in the face to the, to the, the Sabre nerds that, that, that just want to say, based off of the type of player somebody is, they're either going to be good or bad. I hope Mark Trumbo is an all-star. I said it before. I hope Mark Trumbo hits 50 home runs this year. But the thing that has bothered the Diamondbacks the most has been their starting pitching. And it, it, obviously you know about the injuries. You know about Patrick Corbin being out for the season. Uh, you know about Bronson Arroyo not pitching with them to start the season. And, of course, the guy down in the minors, Archie Bradley, the top pitching prospect that they have. He's not with him yet. He hasn't made his debut. Arroyo made that one start after uh, you know missing a couple weeks. But this is a team that has better starting pitching than they've shown so far. And guys like Wade Miley and Trevor Cahill and Brandon McCarthy, uh, to the mo- for the most part, have not gotten a job done. No, Miley has their two wins. Uh, this is a pitching staff that's a little deeper than it's led on so far. A deep bullpen, which I really thought it was. Uh, Addison Reed, I didn't think it was a great acquisition, but adds to the depth that they had with guys like Brad Ziegler and uh, Colmenter and J.J. Putz and, you know, of course, uh, David Hernandez, who's down in the minor leagues right now. But this is a team that certainly has the ability to play a lot better. And they're going to get better starting pitching, let's be honest. I mean, you see this team go over the course of, the, of a full season. Their starting pitching is going to be better. You know Kevin Towers has a thing for bullpens and bullpen arms, so he'll add an arm if he needs to, and this bullpen is already deep as we get into it. But uh, I think this is a team that can absolutely compete with the Los Angeles Dodgers in that division. I don't 
think I, I still go with the Dodgers. Uh, gun to my head, I think the Dodgers win the division. San Francisco Giants are off their very good start. I think they're a playoff team as well. Uh, I think you could make a very good case that the two uh, wild card teams will both come out of the National League Western Division this year. I think just because of the strength. Another team that hasn't gotten off to a, as good of a start um, that has higher expectations is the Cincinnati Reds. And the Cincinnati Reds are a team that I think could go out there and win 88 to 90 games this year. But obviously they, they have had a rough start. They lost two or three to the Mets um, at City Field in the first week of the season, which is something that uh, obviously no team wants to do. You don't want to lose to teams that you expect to win against. And I think if you're the Cincinnati Reds, you expect to go in there to City Field and beat the Mets two out of three times. But uh, offensively, um, other than Brandon Phillips and Joey Votto, who are kind of themselves um, Jay Bruce is off to a tough start. Zach Cozart, the shortstop, not hitting the ball very well. Billy Hamilton, a uh, guy that they've depended a lot on. They expect Billy Hamilton to be a very good uh, on-base guy, steal a ton of bases for them. Um, two for 22 isn't going to cut it, and he's been hurt. Uh, this is a team that has some depth. Uh, starting pitching, you expect to be pretty good, and it, for the most part, has been. Alfredo Simone with a great uh, outing the other day. And uh, one thing I'm going to—I don't mean to go on different tangents and go in different areas, but you know, just understand, I'm a baseball guy. I'm excited. I love talking the game. Uh, Alfredo Simone, which, by the way, that's the pronunciation of his last name, Simone. How many times have I heard, not just in spring training, but during the season as we started, everybody is pronouncing his name Alfredo Simon. That's not the way his name is pronounced. Get it right. It's Alfredo Simone. He did pitch very well in a game against the Mets the other day. Tony Singrani, Homer Bailey, who's been roughed up a little bit, uh, Johnny Cueto, Mike Leak. They have depth in their rotation. And also, Matt Latos is going to be coming back, joining the, the rotation pretty soon. Obviously, their issue is their bullpen. Uh, they don't really have an identity right now with Aroldis Chapman on the disabled list. Jonathan Broxton, who's supposed to be uh, the, the big go-to guy to get the ball to Chapman, has been out. Manny Parra's pitched well. Of course, J.J. Hoover gave up the walk-off grand slam the, last week to Ike Davis. But with guys like Andrusik, Logan Andrusik, and Sam LeCure, uh, they expected to have enough depth in that bullpen. But without the kingpins, the, the guy like Aroldis Chapman to shut down the game in the ninth inning, uh, the they're going to struggle for a little bit. And if they're starting pitching, kind of carry them through this until Chapman gets back. I think the Cincinnati Reds will be fine. But the, the key with this whole thing is either a, a team that's off to a good start that you don't expect to or a team that you think is pretty good that isn't off to a good start. Don't jump to any conclusions yet. It's too early in the season. John Pielli, pass ball show right here. Don't forget to check out johnpielli.com. Tweet at me at john underscore Pielli. We'll be back. little break. Back with former Major League pitcher Chuck Churn. And Chuck Churn was a guy who pitched for the 1959 World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers. Right back after this. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. 
in your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Delisanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And And we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, next interview I'm going to play is one that I, I actually enjoyed doing, and I'll tell you for this reason. Uh, we were out on the road. Of course, if you followed the Passball Show, you know we made a road trip down to Florida. Um, kind of a, a different stop amongst a bunch of different trips that we make to meet with Major League players and kind of talk to them in person. And we were down in Florida. We ended up uh, showing up at Chuck Churn's house. And Chuck Churn is a pitcher that pitched in the late 50s for a couple different teams, including the Los Angeles Dodgers, who won the World Series in 1959. And we ended up getting there pretty late. And you know, for a guy that never met me before, uh, welcomed me into his house and you know, just kind of really uh, gave us his world. And you know, allowed, allowed me to sit down with him, ask him some questions. And, you know, I was really humbled by it because here's a guy that, you know, played in a major league so long ago. And you could tell he just enjoyed the opportunity to talk some baseball. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too much for him. It wasn't a situation where, hey, you know, what are you doing at my house? Go away. But, you know, he allowed me in. And I, I really uh, – one, one of my highlights of my whole trip and, you know, my buddy Billy Staples, who I took the trip with, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised when I mentioned Chuck Churn and meeting him and doing the interview with him as one of the highlights of my entire trip, but it really was. And hopefully you guys enjoy this spot as much as I did. Chuck Churn, of course, uh, played for the Los Angeles Dodgers, played also with the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Cleveland Indians, and shares some stories about some of the experiences that he went through and what he could really trace baseball back to playing baseball in the 1950s and coming up in the 1940s. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Los Angeles Dodgers and 1959 World Series champion right-hand pitcher Chuck Churn. This is John Fielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Chuck Churn, who pitched in the majors for the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Cleveland Indians, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Chuck, appreciate you having a couple minutes. Thank you. Thank you, John. Hey, when they, you go back maybe as far as you can, what is your earliest memory of baseball? Oh, good Lord, let me think. I guess uh, I pitched a doubleheader in double-A baseball. I started both games, won both games, and finished both games. Wow. And that was against uh, uh, Mobile. Okay. So I guess uh, that was a couple of years after I'd 
the Zentro Ball. Okay. But I guess my first memories was catching a bus from uh, from the Eastern Shore of Virginia to uh, Winchester, Virginia, catch another bus to spring training in Huntsville, Alabama. Bye. And a little strange, first time away from home, really. And uh, then we rode an old school bus that had a seat with the iron bars behind it. So we finished spring training and rode that all the way to Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which was a real comfortable ride, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, of course, you end up, uh, you know, signing with the Pirates, and you end up going through their minor league system. What, what comes to your head when you think about your experience with the Pirates organization in the minors? Uh, you know, they had Joe Brown was the general manager of Pirates, and Joe E. Brown was his dad. Okay. And he was active, and uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I think about the, the scout that signed me was John Pope Whalen, uh, and he gave me the opportunity to play with, play pro ball, so. I have to relate, relate back to that, and I don't know, I just, the Pirates were a good organization for me. And i tell you, what fascinates me about you is how, how good of a hitter you are. You know, in spite of being a, you know, a pitcher, you could, you could sure hit. What was, uh, what was your determinant factor with pursuing a professional career as a hitter, as a pitcher, as opposed to being a hitter? Well... That was kind of up to the organization, I guess. Um, Vance Rickey flew me into Pittsburgh to uh, throw in front of him, throw to a guy, Sam Naron, who was a bullpen catch at the time. And uh, I could throw pretty good, and I knocked the mask off of his face and hit him in the chest twice. And he finally threw it all off and told Mr. Ricky, if you want to see him throw, let him throw against the wall. <laughs> and Mr. Ricky said, no, said, you stay on the mound. <laughs> you don't, you don't hit. But, yeah, I, I, I love to hit. Uh, I just love the challenge. Now, if you were in a, if you were in a pitcher, where, 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 where would, what would your favorite place be to play in the field? I guess uh, probably left field. Okay. Left field, maybe first base. Wherever they wanted me. Clementic question. Now, did you have a uh, did, did did you have a, um, a favorite player growing up in regards to let's say a hitter or pitcher? Uh, not really. I think uh, well, the second major league ball game I saw, I played in. Oh, so. I didn't really have a favorite. I just loved oh, baseball. And, uh, of course, Clemente, he was with the Pirates when I was there. And I remember Bobby, Bobby Bragan used to make him go sit down in the outfield and catch fly ball. He'd run, get under the ball, sit down and catch it. And that made him a better outfielder. And he was he was really some kind of ball player. Now he, of course, he did get a chance to watch the great Roberto Clemente play. Is there 
Was there any any one? Because you hear so many stories, and I, I know there's a lot of writers that wrote back then about some of the greater things that happened during his playing career. Do you remember seeing any particular moment uh, from Clemente, whether it was throwing a runner out with his you know his tremendous arm or oh, using I, all his tools? You know, yeah. he could hit the ball a mile as well. Yeah, I saw it several times, making throws and outstanding catches, but. One thing that stands out in my mind is that the year that Elroy Face won uh, 18 ball games, he was 17-0, and I beat him the only game that year. And uh, the the guy that I struck out to finish the inning was Clemente to finish the ball game. And another little trivia question was, I was the last guy to pitch the Enos Slaughter. <laughs> now, you know, so was he playing for at the time? Uh, he, he was Slaughter. He was still with the Cardinals? Yes, oh. he was Cardinals, and that was in 59 when I pitched against the Cardinals. Oh, in fact, I got my first win, I think, against the Cardinals. I pitched four and two-thirds innings and got the win. Now, once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Chuck Churn. And you also got a chance to pitch with the with the Dodgers, like you just mentioned. The Dodgers made it to the World Series, ended up winning a World Series in 59. It must have, must have been a pretty nice ride, you know, being there during the season, getting a pitch in the playoffs, and even pitched in the World Series. Yes, uh, I remember uh, we went into San Francisco. Uh, we were two games behind. We won the first two games. And I pitched in the second game. And then in the third game, we either go a game behind or we go a game ahead. And uh, Danny McDevitt came in to pitch in the eighth, relieved and pitched the eighth inning. And he struck McCovey out on, on six pitches and never threw a strike. McCovey chased three bad balls. And I was in the bullpen warming up, and when that happened, I just said, Whoosh, and I sat down. And by the time I sat down, Joe Becker, the pitching coach, said, answered the telephone. He said, uh, Chuck said, you're in there for the night. Well, we had uh, Mays, Cepeda, and Beryl Spencer. So I come in, and I go 3-0 on Mays. And those bear calls for fastball, I shook it off. Fastball, I shook it off. He comes to the man, he says, You know, you got to throw a strike. I said, Yeah, but I can't throw a fastball. He lit that out of here. <laughs> so he said, well, What do you want to throw? I said, I'm going to throw him a slider. So I come back, I threw a slide, and he took it for a strike. And the next pitch, I remember, I threw a fastball in on him, and he had a ground ball to Mari Wills. Who threw him out at first? Cepeda hit the first pitch to Charlie Neal at second base. It threw him out. I struck Darrell Spencer out on three pitches. And so I got the save at that ball game. But uh, a little scary. <laughs> now, now, how did it feel to be part of the uh, the World Series champion Dodger team? Oh, so great! But you know, the uh, uh, getting. Winning the championship was like more pressure than being in the World Series. You know, you go in the World Series, you know you're there. But getting there was 
kind of where the pressure was. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, it ends up being the first World Series championship for a West Coast team as well. Yeah. You know, bringing up, you know, Los Angeles, of course, just got the Dodgers and San Francisco just got the Giants a couple of years before. So it must have been a must have been an exciting environment around all those new people who probably hadn't seen too much baseball really over the last couple of years. Right. I can remember ninety two thousand people in the Coliseum. Uh you know, they had Campanella night there one night. And Campanella was at home plate in a wheelchair. And, and the Coliseum didn't have dugouts or anything. We had chairs along the first baseline, down the third baseline. And I was in what they called a bullpen. And they cut all the lights off. And they said at the count of three, anybody that's got a lighter or a match, strike it. And at the count of three, everybody in that Coliseum struck a match. And the whole stadium lit up, and I could see tears running down Campanella's cheek from, from the bullpen. Now, it must have, been, must have been an incredible moment. It was awesome. It was awesome. And you know, the Dodgers paid his salary right up until he, he passed and then they took care of his wife who was from Cape Charles close to the town where I lived. Her family owned a seafood store in Cape Charles, Virginia. I remember. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I tell you, they did a nice job. Definitely man, man deserved it. Yeah. And you know, when uh, the O'Malley's, O'Malley's had the, the Dodgers, they had an old-timers game every five to ten years. And, of course, after they sold it, there was no more. So I have a couple old-timer game pictures in there. That's awesome. been there. When's the last time you went back? Yeah, when, when was the last time you were there? 92. 92? Yeah. 92, and uh, went out and saw uh, Venezuela pitching no hitter. Did it? Yeah, we were there for that game. So that was the game you happened to be there, and you thought yeah, it was better? Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> now, did you uh, did you ever get a chance to play in an all-timers game for? Oh yeah, yeah. What was the last one you played in? Do you remember? In 92. That was in 92. Yeah, I came in in the last inning, and so it was. A reliever, mostly in the closing role. Yeah, yeah, so that, so. yeah it was uh, my legs were kind of giving out on me. <laughs> and uh, throughout your career, you obviously had a chance to uh, to have a couple different kind of roommates. Any anyone's come to mind that you that you remember or you think of? Well, Earl Weaver, quite rapidly. <laughs> yeah, he and I were good buddies. We we. Uh, Played together for three years, and then uh, he went on to manage the Orioles. And we had agreed when uh, he was managing for the Orioles, and I was managed for Colts. He was with Colts at the time, and they yeah. later changed to the Astros. But we went to Sarasota, and we played each other about every day. And that was when Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. 
And Weaver said to me, he said, if I go to the big leagues and manager, you'll be my coach. If you go as a manager, I'll be your coach. Yeah. Well, I got out of baseball the year before he got the manager's job, and I went home and I was farming. I farmed the 600 acres of land, and I had 400 acres of potatoes in the ground. And we were called and said, I've got the job. Are you ready to coach? And I said, I'm sorry, Earl, but I got to turn it down. That's out of hand. Yeah, that's life. That's life. Hey, listen, Chuck, I really appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, allowing me in your home, and the best of luck to you. Well, I appreciate you all being here. Thanks for coming by. Great catching up there with former Major League pitcher Chuck Churn. And like I said, I was very humbled to have a chance to meet him and really uh, impressed with his hospitality and his, his willingness to sit down and share some baseball stories. Uh, and, you know, as, as we're within opening day week, one more thing I want to hit on. And one thing that hasn't happened too much in Major League Baseball history that I think should be acknowledged every opening day. You know, a player, a hitter goes out there and has a star performance, a, a star pitching performance. It would be the equivalent of maybe a no-hitter, uh, which has only been done once. Bob Feller threw the no-hitter uh, for the Cleveland Indians in 1940 against the Chicago White Sox. To, to this day, remains the only no-hitter thrown on opening day in the history of the game. Last year, Bryce Harper added to the list of Major League Baseball players who hit two home runs on opening day. However, only three batters in the history of Major League Baseball have hit three in a game on opening day. The first time it ever happened, of course, was April 4th of 1988 when Toronto Blue Jays slugger George Bell hit three home runs against the Kansas City Royals. All of them, by the way, off of Cy Young Award winner Brett Saberhagen. Bell, a three-time All-Star in 1987 AL MVP, had a down 1988 season, uh, hitting just 269, 24 home runs, 97 RBIs after putting up much louder numbers in past seasons. Bell is known for being traded to the, to the Cubs, uh, from the Cubs to the White Sox in a deal that sent future 600-plus home run hitter Sammy Sosa to the Cubs. Bell hit 278 with 265 home runs, 1,002 RBIs in his 12 big league seasons. On opening day of 1994, the Mets were playing the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. Uh, wind was blowing out a little bit, but little-known outfielder, Tuffy Rhodes, no relations to, to Dusty Rhodes. Dusty was white. Black. Um, Dusty Rhodes, of course, was the MVP of the 1954 World Series for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, Tuffy Rhodes ends up hitting three home runs for the Cubs. They all came off of Dwight Gooden, who was pitching for the Mets. Uh, of course, Gooden didn't have a, a very good 1994 season. He was suspended twice uh, for his issues with cocaine, and of course, that was the beginning of what became the end of his promising Hall of Fame-type career. Uh, Rhodes himself didn't have a lot of major league success, but he had a great career in Japan. He had over 50 home runs twice, 40 home runs seven times over his career, 464 home runs for his career. Uh, his home runs total of 464 is the highest total for a foreign-born player in the history of Japanese baseball. Exactly 17 years to the day that George Bell hit the three home runs for the Toronto Blue Jays. It was done again in the American League, and this time it was done by Dimitri Young, who became, of course, uh, the second to do defeat. 
the third all time. He did so against the Kansas City Royals on two, in 2005. Uh, Young had his best success of his career in Detroit, mostly as a designated hitter. Uh, hit 292 with 171 home runs, 683 RBIs in 13 big league seasons. And I, I think this is a stat that, I, I don't know, I think it's a little underrated. He hit three home runs, not only to do it in a major league game, but to do it on opening day. I think it's impressive that it's been done three times, and I think it is an outstanding stat that we seldomly kind of go to. But George Bell in the American League, Tuffy Rhodes in the National League, and of course Dimitri Young uh, were the three major league hitters to hit three home runs on opening day in the history of the game. Big thanks to Rick Reichert and, of course, Chuck Churn for being part of the program in the first hour. Second hour, I got some good interviews ready to play, so see you in five minutes. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago. 